Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening. A very warm welcome to the global audiences joining in for this COP26 side event being hosted by ODI, FTCSG, and Climate Bonds Initiative as a part of the UK Pact program. My name is Namita Vikas, and I'm the founder and managing director of OctaCSG, which is a global advisory firm on sustainable finance and climate strategy. It is my privilege to extend a very special welcome to our speakers, Dr. Urujit Patel and Ms. Teresa Lobo. Welcome and looking forward to your interventions. Well, COP26 ends today, and there has been a lot of buzz around action from governments and financiers. The conference has provided some very interesting and encouraging developments in the last two weeks. It has demonstrated the vigor of climate action from around the world through new and improved commitments and pledges. We saw the China-US deal, for that matter, which ramped up climate cooperation, and of course, banks, insurers, and investors pledging over global capital of $130 trillion behind net zero, making this 25 times of the figure that was just two years ago and half of the world's uh, money. And of course, India's pledge to get 50% energy from renewable sources by 2030 and to reach net zero by 2070. While all these developments are promising, the reality is that unless world leaders are actually able to meet all targets, all conditional and unconditional indices, and keep all commitments, the world is heading for a 2.4 degree warming. Therefore, ensuring transformational and systemic change is a key priority in the coming years. But what complicates things is the twin issue of rapidly scaling financing and effectively managing climate risks. These threaten the successes of the pledges made at the conference. Bankrolling global climate action is perhaps the most critical challenge ahead of the world and further the involvement of the private capital, the better assessment of ESG and climate risks, the greater focus on regulation to ensure transparency and disclosures are all critical factors for success. Climate risk assessment is gaining momentum over the last two to three years with regulators in the lead. Bank of England's recent climate stress test or the SEC's announcement on climate risk disclosure regulation or for that matter, RBI's stance on climate change impact on financial stability. All these signals the global finance community that it is time for change. However, in truth, there, these aren't enough. In India, climate emergencies are costing billions of dollars and financial institutions must bear the responsibility of enhanced climate risk assessments to determine, mitigate or eliminate exposure. But several challenges hamper a move in this direction at the moment, and these include nascency of understanding of ESG and climate risks in the Indian financial sector, lack of common and unified narrative or a framework, and lack of data that in turn makes measurement or quantification of some of the qualitative impacts of climate change very difficult. But the good news is that each of these challenges can and is being addressed. Regulators in India are grabbing the massive opportunity of catalyzing policy as a tool to help achieve India's new net zero pledge. Indicators are the RBI joining the NGFS or the IFSCS Sustainable Finance Hub or the Sustainable Finance Committee Initiative, the Ministry of Finance leading the sustainable finance work and the forthcoming taxonomy that we are all waiting for. These are all indicators of the impetus to climate action. 
The work ODI Climate Bonds Initiative and Octus ESG are undertaking in India as a part of the UK Pact program is building preparedness within 10 Indian banks and financial institutions for inevitable shifts in regulation and market pressures. These large institutions are a part of this program, and I'm sure these are exciting uh, opportunities to strengthen ESG and climate risk management at the same time curate a financially sound and climate-proof Indian financial sector. Well, it's high time we grab the bull by its horns and dive into better understand, manage, and mitigate climate risks as the first and the most crucial step towards climate action. To this end, we have a short video by Dr. G.R. Chintala, Chairman of NABAD, which is a leading institution on ESG risk management and deploys billions towards sustainable finance. He speaks on the role of finance in climate action. A dangerously warming planet is a hardly just an environmental challenge. NABAD believes that directing capital to boost resilience to climate impacts, particularly for vulnerable social groups, makes for effective interventions. Climate action and equity must be the twin pillars upon which we build our inclusive and sustainable future. Well, that was an interesting message. And today, via another short video, we also aim to celebrate frontrunners in India's financial sector on managing climate risks and leveraging lending opportunities. Over to you, Ratin. Thank you.
Thank you. Thank you, Namita. And uh, let me introduce myself first to the audience. Thank you for attending what promises to be an interesting event on India on the very last day of the COP. I'm Rathin Roy. I'm the Managing Director of ODI. It's not the Overseas Development Institute anymore, just ODI. And I'll be chairing today's discussion. For my views on COP, please check out the ODI website and the Twitter handle because I will just be chairing the discussion. With great pleasure, because we have an excellent, I think, erudite panel today of three. Uh, I'm delighted and honored that Dr. Ujit Patel, former Governor Reserve Bank of India, eminent Indian macroeconomist, has agreed to join us, particularly because I was very stimulated by a paper he wrote for OMFIF a few months ago uh, on the imperative for India and Indian regulators to take climate action. That paper is certainly, I know, resonated in the more thoughtful parts of the Indian macroeconomics establishment, because he did point out that this challenge was a systemic challenge and not one that could be solved by looking just at finance. Teresa Loba, head of Green Finance Bank of England, United Kingdom. Uh, the Bank of England is self-declared front-runner on climate finance. Their green disclosure reports are keenly awaited and read. Their action on regulating the green financial system, both domestically and internationally, their propositional engagement in the theme make them one of the leading central banks intellectually to engage with the issue of green finance. Welcome, Teresa, and look forward to your views. And Prashant Vaz, who is Senior Policy Fellow of the Climate Bonds Initiative, which I'm honored also to be a senior advisor of. The Climate Bonds Initiative works to enable countries develop taxonomies and engage in market uh, interventions to be able to secure finance for development, but that finance can be said to be climate friendly, climate compatible, climate positive. Uh, this is obviously a topic of personal interest of mine because I'm a public finance economist and uh, climate finance impacts both, I think, the ability of a government to run a fiscal policy that demonstrates financial responsibility, at least in its borrowing activities, uh, and uh, enables, I think, the burden of investing in transformation and prosperity to be more effectively shared the more the private sector is able to mobilize climate finance on terms that recognize the positive impact that climate financing has and incorporates it into the pricing of financial products. Uh, over the past two weeks, negotiators at, CAP, at, at the COP have been very active. Uh, my worry is that to quote Her Majesty the Queen of England uh, just before COP, they talk, but they do not do. Uh, the, that comment, I think, we in India could also do well to reflect on. So it'll be interesting to see today, amidst all the talk about the need for climate finance, what we can actually do to make it happen and contribute to the larger cause of building a financial system that can manage, among other things, climate-related risks and mobilize capital for green investments by actually serving the cause of increasing the availability of capital for investment and not by putting fiduciary or Basel-type constraints on it um, as a means to making sure climate is green. Uh, it is certainly true that most Indian financial institutions do not account for the impact of climate risks on their balance sheets. And at the moment, the Reserve Bank of India does not require them to do so. 
I'm aware that when Ujit was governor, he commissioned uh, work to try and see whether a green finance regulatory strategy could be framed. I'm, I don't know quite what happened to that, but it certainly isn't anything that's formal yet now. Um, in a small way, my own organization, ODI, in combination with Octus and with Climate Bonds, is trying to contribute to both awareness and uh, tool building and capacity to enable improved monitoring and reporting of climate-related financial risks in India. This initiative is generously funded by UK PACT, which is a UK government <coughs> initiative to enable um, organizations such as ours to partner with institutions in countries, in selected countries. We're doing this in India. Uh, and uh, I, this, is this, this particular convening is part of the UK PACT series of activities that we are engaged with. I'm very happy to see in the audience partners from some of the state governments and other places in UK PACT here. Uh, this event looks to insights from the three senior leaders in the panel. And we will also explore opportunities that Indian regulators may have drawing on the wisdom of the panel, both looking at international experience and domestically to strengthen climate-related risk management and expand green investment and lending. Uh, before we start, just some very quick housekeeping. We have dedicated Q&A. Please use the Q&A icon to send me a message in chat, which the other participants will also see. And then depending on supply and demand, we will collectively manage our responses, but respond we will. Uh, please also note that this event is being recorded. So if you don't like that, then um, you know, sort of you may wish to switch off the event. If you like it, then please stay with us because the recording will be made live next week on different digital channels of our organizations that are organizing this event. Thank you. Let me then start uh, moderating by directing my first question to Dr. Ujit Patel. Uh, Dr. Patel, the energy sector seems to be at the center of the decarbonization objective. But in that context, what are the most pertinent risks for the financial sector? Uh, thank you, Rati. Uh, if I could uh, uh, just pose that in an alternative way, uh, that what are the additional risks uh, that are engendered for the financial sector on account of the decarbonization and agenda and the, and the net zero commitment? Uh, so the energy sector financing uh, risks pose a challenge because funding for both renewables and other initiatives and technologies uh, that would have to be deployed for decarbonization and traditional high carb hydrocarbon fuel electricity generation has to take place in the coming decades. Uh, hardly any sizable country can at this juncture choose a corner solution in this context. Uh, this is especially so for many developing countries like India and others, where per capita consumption of electricity is still low and lifeline energy availability, while keeping it affordable, has some way to go even for modest security and household welfare. The cost of capital for energy from both sources, or rather for both sources, is important. Green bonds are welcome, but so is funding for conventional energy. The segue from less conventional to more renewable will have to be smooth. Those clamoring for abrupt changes should be ready to pay for costs of dislocation. 
Therefore, perforce, my general comments are against the backdrop of this broader energy context. Despite pressures, lenders are facing up to these challenges of climate risk expectations. The key in this context is mapping the various forms of climate risks onto financial risks. There are five sets of well-known transition risks that affect lenders. One is the policy and legal, which encompass, among other things, enhanced reporting obligations, regulation of existing products and services, including energy efficiency standards and the pricing of emissions. Second is technology, which is the substitution of existing products and services with lower emissions options. These risks are not insignificant beyond the solar-based renewables segment. Third is the markets, and this is the changing customer behavior. Fourth is reputation, which is the segmentization of some sectors, perhaps even litigation and negative stakeholder feedback. Fifth is the extreme climate events may expose financial institutions, including insurance companies, to unprecedented and large payouts. For optimal risk management, the challenge, in, the challenge is mapping these five transition risks to the financial metric. That is, how do these affect credit risk, market risk, liquidity risk, and funding risk for both carbon intensive and low or zero carbon sectors? For the former, Risk of standard assets is sometimes the most apparent one. However, a cursory glance at empirical evidence on carbon premia in syndicated lending contracts suggests that these so far are modest, even small. On the other hand, there are very few cogent and systematically integrated metrics that allow for estimating green discounts. Direct climate risk for energy projects, say a coal-fired or natural gas-fired thermal power station, is small, perhaps even non-existent. But abrupt changes in policy and regulation can be important, especially if this is done retrospectively. Taxing carbon emissions of plants that are already operational or under construction, or a clean energy cess on coal for mines that are already in operation. This actually increases the cost of capital for everyone. There are some other considerations that I would call slightly more macro in nature. For many developing countries, some might even call it the deafening silence of any meaningful commitment on the $100 billion a year support to help them with adaptation and mitigation. Let us be clear that this was supposed to be by way of grants and fiscal support not by increasing foreign currency indebtedness of poor countries or relabeling of existing programs, say by the OECD. Justice and self-interest both need to come together. Second, backsliding. Credible commitments are impossible to make, especially by sovereigns. Optimistic and outsized announcements will only mean that the rollback risk is that much higher. This risk is different from regulatory and policy risks, which are usually smooth. Rollback risk is discontinuous. Witness the dash for coal and natural gas in recent months in parts of the world that had made coal an unutterable four-letter word. The much, 
viscous transition risk has to incorporate this rollback possibility too. Flexibility is key. In other words, ironically, long-term over-optimistic policy goals themselves can be a source of uncertainty and doubt, which increases the cost of capital for the energy sector. Thirdly is the fiscal risk. While we often talk about subsidies for carbon intensive energy sources, lenders also have to determine how sustainable are subsidies for renewable power. Some of it is revenue foregone, like lower transmission and drilling charges, lower cross subsidy obligations, cheaper land, etc. Let me end my initial comment by cautioning against explicitly and effectively adding carbon-related import tariffs to the agenda of the World Trade Organization, the WTO, which is currently functioning without an appellate body. That itself is risky. It will be one more nail in the coffin of the rules-based global trading system that has helped to lift hundreds of millions out of poverty in recent decades. Developing countries should be forewarned that diverse permanent bureaucracies in countries that have contributed the highest to the historical stock of greenhouse gases are busy sharpening pencils to come up with trade barriers under the guise of carbon level playing field. Thank you. Thank you very much, Urjit. Uh, I am absolutely delighted that my suspicion that I would enjoy your intervention has proven right. Uh, I'd like to point to the audience at least uh, something that for me is completely innovative which is very important in developing countries, which Dr. Patel highlighted, other than the other, the taxonomy of risk that he provided, which was in itself very useful. Rollback risk. And this is why I think countries like India have been very, very cautious. And even there, I have my doubts in committing promises that we have seen European countries and other rich countries break with alacrity for the past 25, 30 years. No country likes to emulate bad habits, and therefore we'd like to keep rollback risk to the minimum, not to mention the political consequences in, in essentially fragile developing countries of rollback risks happening. The other, I think, point that Dr. Patel made was very important and often overlooked, that there has to be some sort of coordinated action on the fiscal and monetary side. But what seems to be happening is that in sector after sector, as he said, people are sharpening their pencils in almost a Jesuitical way to sanction activities which would promote growth and prosperity in developing countries. And the WTO, sans an appellate body, is not at this time, I think, an acceptable forum to become climate-facing in a sanctioning sense. If there are proposals to improve free trade and enhance it that are good for the climate, I think the developing countries would have open ears but not the way the argument is going. So thank you very much, Urjit. Uh, I just highlighted those two points because I've never heard them before and they're very useful. Uh, let me now move to uh, Dr. Loeber, uh, Teresa Loeber from the Bank of England. So I thought, um, Ms. Loeber, the, if you could start by broadly telling us something that puzzles me and I've been critical about it, why does the Bank of England consider climate change to be part of its central mandate? And, uh, the other question is, you have achieved as the regulator, I think, considerable success on climate-related financial disclosure. Having got those disclosures, what do you see as the next step? Over to you. 
Thank you very much. And thank you very much for the invitation to participate in the panel today. I'm delighted to be here. Um, so in terms of how we think about our mandate, climate change creates financial risks, <clears throat> and it does that through several channels. So Dr. Patel spoke a lot about the transition, the need for the economy to change to meet our net zero emission ambitions. And that requires a fundamental change across an entire economy, how we produce, how we consume. That will impact the economy and by turn the financial sector. But if we fail to transition, then we will see extreme f physical risks. And we're already seeing quite a lot of that today. We'll only see more flooding, sea level rises, wildfires. All of that will lead to a um, damage or destruction of um, infrastructure, property and assets. And so that directly creates financial risks for the financial sector and, of course, for the economy. So the way we think about it is that it directly affects our mandates, which is financial stability, the safety and soundness of the firms that we regulate, so banks and insurers, and monetary stability. And we started our work a few years ago, and actually recently the, gov the UK government have changed our remit to um, actively include climate, a reference to um, the, their ambition to reach zero emissions by 2050 and reflect the work we have been doing and the need for that work. So in terms of what we're doing to try to address that, we've started, we started a while ago to actively engage with the financial sector and we have set some supervisory expectations. So we're asking our firms to disclose information. Namita made the point how important it is to create more data and more information and more transparency within the market. We're also asking them to include climate embedded in their governance. So we want firms to discuss this issue at board level and we want them to appoint someone senior who's accountable to us as the regulator to make sure every financial firm has a plan for how they will address these risks and assess and understand them. We also ask firms to embed it in their risk management. So this doesn't need to be a separate team and a separate function. It can be embedded in their risk management function because it's credit risk, it's operational risk, it is market risk. And finally, we're asking firms to do scenario analysis. And I will come back to that shortly. One point I want to make is that this is really hard. So learning, developing the tools for how we really assess these risks and we understand them. All of this is nascent, it's new. We don't have all the answers by any means. And so I think there's a really important point around working together and sharing expertise where we do develop it. So we set up a climate financial risk forum, which is a forum that we chair jointly with the Financial Conduct Authority, so the other financial regulator in the UK. And it includes industry across the board, so banks, insurers, asset managers, and now pension funds. And the idea is to bring together industry, both UK and international, to think about the key challenges, what expertise there is, how we can develop further expertise, and how can we share that. So this forum has been a very useful way to, um, for industry to have that platform to engage, but also for industry to think about, not just in their bubble about, oh, how does that affect the banking sector or the insurance sector or the pension funds, but actually where do things align and cut across? So what are the data requirements and how can we align those? So the different financial, the different parts of the financial system don't ask the real economy for different bits of data, but we try to make this as smooth and easy as possible. And we published um, some guidance or the firms published guidance on the back of these discussions and that work, which are publicly um, available. Now, one key tool for assessing the risks in our mind is scenario analysis and so let me say a little bit more about that 
Climate change is different in its nature. It, as I said earlier, it is similar in the sense that it is market risk, it's operational risk, it's credit risk. But it is also different because the time horizon over which we need to assess it is a very different one. It's not the business cycle. We're looking at decades rather than years. We also know that the risks will only continue to build unless we take action today. And so, again, it is different also for us as a regulator because we need to think about that increasing risk over time rather than a risk that will just naturally potentially go away. So we have asked our firms um, in the UK, the largest banks and insurers, to undertake scenario analysis. And we're asking them to run three different scenarios. So one is an orderly transition to net zero by 2050, which is ideally what we all want. One is a scenario that assumes that action is delayed. So despite all the government promises, action won't happen in time for another, in this case, nine years. So by 2030, this action is finally put into um, into place and we then still see a transition but obviously it has to be much more drastic and Dr Patel made the point around the risks around this really sudden disruptive transition and so ideally it's something we'd like to avoid but we really want to understand the risks that are associated with such a transition and finally what if we don't transition what if we get the extreme physical risks and I think there's a really important point here for us to understand around so insurance firms have long been thinking about some of these physical risks but they also typically reset their policies every year and so if we think further ahead are we getting into space where maybe insurance is no longer willing to provide insurance as is we already have an insurance gap so where could that open up and I think that's a particular concern also for um, emerging markets like India but very much also in the UK and so where UK firms are exposed internationally and lending internationally that's a real um, issue that we need to think about similarly quite often banks assume that insurance is in place when it might not be and so they need to think through where they're exposed to these risks so the objective for us is for to understand the exposures of individual firms but also the system as a whole so where do they interplay and then we want to understand the management actions firms have plans. So do they plan to divest? Do they plan to invest a lot in green assets of which we know there are currently not very many and that could create a bubble, for example? How do firms think about it? What are their planned management actions? How do they plan to adjust their business model? And finally, it's a very useful tool for us to actually just um, get firms to build up these capabilities. Again, we know this is really difficult, so we're trying to actively support them on this journey. The flip side to all of this, of course, is we're very much focused on risks because that is our mandate. But the other side of that is opportunities. So for the financial sector to actively use this exercise to identify the opportunities where they can support this transition, where they can play an active part. So, for example, we asked them to engage with the large, largest counterparts and have conversations to understand how those firms are thinking about the transitions. What plans have they got in place? What are the key milestones? And how can the financial sector play an active role in supporting that transition? Scenario analysis, like everything else to do with climate, is difficult. And so we have worked internationally through the Network for Green Financial System, and we were absolutely delighted when the RBI joined the NGFS. We have been working with the NGFS and a group of climate scientists to develop climate scenarios for use by supervisors, by regulators, by central banks, and by the financial system. And these are also freely available. And there's quite a lot of information on the website. So I would encourage all financial firms to have a look at that and have a go. What we have found with our financial firms is, because it is difficult, you almost only appreciate just how difficult it is when you start. And so it's incredibly important to start. I know there are real struggles here. We don't have all the data we'd like. We don't have all the models. We don't have all the full understanding of these issues, but we need to get started because putting off understanding the challenge 
it's not going to make the risks any smaller. It's going only going to increase them. Thank you. A bit slow at unmuting. <clears throat> thank you. Thank you very much, Teresa. That was very informative for me. Uh, I thought very precise. I have a follow-up question, but please don't answer it now. And this is to both you and Ujit, which is how does this affect the sovereign space? Are you going to look at the Bank of England said in its report, for instance, that we are so our lending is green because we, we principally issue sovereign paper to the UK, which is a green country. So does that mean going forward that there will become a sort of different market for different sovereigns depending on how green their country is? Or are we looking at things like the Indonesian Sokok, where there will be an entire line of sovereign product that would be explicitly green, thereby breaking a rule of public finance, which is partitioning, uh, you know, uh, how the government bonds, but that's fine. Uh, be interesting to know your views, both on the desirability of applying these principles to sovereign and a bit more on how, but not now, uh, just for you to reflect on, because it's not part of the play role uh, and pending other questions. Uh, Prashant, over to you. Uh, let's talk about India. How great are climate risks exposures of Indian banks compared to banking in other countries? And what can the RBI do to help reduce climate risk exposure? This is important for every Indian because I'm over 50 now and I've had three taxpayer bailouts of the Indian banking system in my lifetime. And that's just after the banks were nationalized. So <laughs> if we don't want any further overload on the taxpayers, it'd be good to get your perspective on this. Over to you. Thank you, Rutter, and uh, I'd like to welcome Teresa and uh, Dr. Patel on behalf of CBI as uh, one of the joint hosts. Um, yes, I'm going to comment a little bit about the impact of the India's transition, energy transition, on the banks and how we ensure that we get an orderly transition so the banks can continue to you know, potentially provide credit um, to these really important and huge energy companies that constitute uh, the Indian energy market. I mean, the first point to make is that India is quite unlike other G20 countries. It's got amongst the lowest uh, carbon emissions per person anywhere in the world, about three tons per person, which is you know, half of that of the UK. And yet it's got uh, some of the highest emissions per kilowatt hour of electricity generated. Now, this isn't the, uh, any sort of paradox. Um, we all understand that something like two thirds of Indian power comes from coal. But this is set to change. As uh, Prime Minister uh, Modi announced last week, um, India is set to increase the share of renewables to 50% by 2030. That's 500 gigawatts of capacity. Currently, it's at around 100. Now, to put that into some kind of perspective, uh, that rate of change is something like 10 times the rate of the UK is attempting. So it, um, that is the scale of capital that has to be mobilized, a mixture of mainly private, uh, but also uh, public. But what has all this got to do with central banks? Over 10% of uh, bank lending in India is to the power sector. And we did a, a, a part of a fairly thorough analysis of uh, credits from banks at the individual loan level as part of the UK PAC project that Namita uh, and Ratan has talked about. Something like 85% of um, this lending to the energy companies is to uh, companies with a mixture of brown assets and green assets. So this is going to be the engine of change. Only about 15% of uh, power sector lending is to pure play green companies. Now, if the policy landscape changes as quickly as it needs to, and Rutan, I do share your kind of worries that um, we're good at making announcements, but the follow through hasn't yet to happen. But if the policy landscape is to change as quickly as it needs to, then what is 
the effect on the viability of these power companies. They're going to rapidly transition from essentially largely coal companies to a mixture of coal and less and less of coal to, to renewables. Um, banks need to understand and test the consequences of this rapid transition. And I know that India is not at the moment contemplating any kind of carbon price. And uh, Dr. Patel, I, I, I hear what you're saying about um, the kind of worries about some of the um, border tariff adjustments, CBAM type policies that the EU is uh, implementing. But this might well be the reality that India faces. That's if um, companies in Europe and US and Japan that are going through transition in internationally traded sectors like iron and steel, if they're going to be remain viable, then some kind of protection of this nascent green economy within um, OECD countries is going to possibly happen. So that, that's, that's a reality that we're going to have to get used to. So even though India might not itself uh, impose any kind of carbon tax anytime soon, it's going to, the, the reality it's going to face is um, the possibility that Indian banks will face higher costs of capital um, as investors in um, OECD countries are signing up to net zero uh, pledges uh, and moving away from lending to um, companies that are not um, part of this net zero. Um, they're going to face issues like lower utilization rates. As this 500 gigawatts of renewable energy comes onto the system, there'll be lower and lower utilization rates of coal-fired power stations putting pressure on them. And this indirect uh, carbon taxes or environmental um, processes to, that will inhibit uh, the operation of coal-fired plants. So what we need to see is, is an orderly transition uh, where these risks are managed. So this means that the banks have to make sure they can provision for this change in um, lending and that they're pricing the future lending to ensure that um, brown lending is appropriately priced for the higher risks that it imposes on financial systems and green lending is, 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 is relatively speaking cheaper. Now, I think as Theresa has, uh, has indicated already, uh, the NGFS is working very closely with um, uh, many ba uh, central banks around the world uh, using, they've developed the, the scenarios, and I understand from one of their recent publications, something like 30 central banks around the world are, are contemplating um, using these scenarios either to do stress tests or at some stage of the process. Um, no central bank is going to get this right the first time. Um, as we all know, the data on exposure is not there yet. Um, a lot of the information that needs to be available on carbon intensity of uh, lending, of portfolios, doesn't exist. And uh, we heard about insurance companies, it, it, it's the same problem there. Uh, we won't get it right the first time, but it's important that we make, make the start and make sure that we start collecting data so we understand what the risks are at the moment, uh, what the plans are of banks and the, um, their counterparties, the, the, the companies they lend to. And uh, we, we start getting this kind of disclosure out there. Um, so I think the disclosure and um, this kind of transparency is, is a first step, but it's only a first step. Um, I've noticed um, increasingly central banks around the world are experimenting with radically different policies where they're actually intervening to change the relative cost of capital. So uh, the PBOC is trying to nudge banks now to uh, rebalance their lending. And I think in a very exciting policy that was uh, launched only uh, this week, uh, they're creating a new liquidity tool where uh, the central bank is providing a credit line to banks at 1.75% interest rates, uh, which then can be relent to uh, green projects at a higher rate. So this is where this kind of nexus of taxonomy, definitions of green, and 
genuine regulatory intervention to change relative pricing really comes in. Not the one or two basis points difference that we're seeing in green bonds, which are welcome, but not enough, but this real 200, 300 basis points difference. Um, I think as Theresa, uh, it was a little bit modest, but could well have mentioned, UK is itself uh, tilting its corporate bond purchasing uh, away from firms that are not making full disclosures. And uh, there are other ideas out there, like carbon cyclical uh, capital buffers, whereby banks that have got a portfolio of lending to greener projects can acquire or have uh, less capital um, that they have to deposit with the central bank, which less, less of an issue with India, I know, but uh, in some countries that's quite an important policy. But one of the things that the virtues of India is obviously it's uh, priority sets of lending. That's an incredibly powerful tool. At the moment, that's being used for lending to some of the smaller renewable projects. But um, it's a good way of actually trying to forcing uh, capital flows, not just to small uh, renewable projects, but to the larger ones as well. If we're trying to uh, achieve 500 gigawatts of renewables and do it in an orderly way, which ensures continued capital flows from the private sector and international capital markets, this kind of nexus of taxonomy, central banks interventions, and um, and uh, sort of t uh, disclosure is, is the, thing, the way I think we need to go. Thank you very much. Thank you, Prashant. I note in passing, and this is an interesting phenomenon, that uh, what was once a necessity seems to have become a virtue. Central banks now buy corporate bonds with alacrity and make a virtue out of it. Uh, that wasn't the idea when they were buying corporate bonds in the first place. I say this because suddenly priority sector lending, which according to central bank dogma was a horrible thing India was doing for 20 years, seems to have become a virtue. So broadly, uh, I'd be interested to know, I mean, in your in your remarks, all of you, you know, whether the idea that central bank should be in the business of subvention and subsidy is now part of the core theology of central banking. Have I missed something here? Or what? Because to celebrate priority sector lending and to celebrate buying corporate bonds, which were what I thought in an emergency, uh, and then to now say, oh, now we can use this as an instrument for green, I might have to re-educate myself on the theory of central banking. But anyway, uh, let, we don't have any explicit questions yet. So can I ask both Urjit and uh, Teresa perhaps to uh, reflect on the sovereign question I asked? Perhaps, Teresa, you could go first this time. Yes, very happy to. Actually, let me pick up on the corporate bond point first. So I think it's one point that's very important to us is that whatever we do in this space is within our remit So and our mandate. So we don't buy corporate bonds for, you know, for a purpose other than monetary policy. But given that we hold a corporate bond purchase, so this goes to a wider point where we say we're asking the financial sector to do something. We should hold ourselves to the same high standard. We're asking firms to incorporate climate considerations in all financial decisions. Then we should be doing the same. If we think this is a financial risk, it also is a risk to our corporate portfolio. And so this is why we use our corporate portfolio. We have undertaken quite a lot of work to look at how we can tilt it to make sure it's still primarily serves the purpose of monetary policy. But while it is doing that, you know, it also supports the transition and is green. So I think to your point about should the central bank be in the space of subsidies or setting, for example, setting risk rates to actively support this? Absolutely not. I think we're very clear that that is not the purpose. That is for government. Climate policy is for governments to set, not for central banks. What is our responsibility, however, is to manage the risks that have come out of it. So if government, government action is missing, 
the risks will still come back to us. So we still have to worry about those. So it's a tricky dynamic to manage sometimes. On the sovereign bond space, I think, I mean, I think it's an excellent question. And it's a tricky one. So we have a portfolio, again, for monetary policy purposes, where that is made up of um, government well, UK government uh, bonds, uh, sovereign bonds, and that's 98%. So our corporate portfolio is actually tiny by comparison. And we would like that to get to net zero, but the only way for that to get to net zero is effectively, it is a reflection of the UK economy. So once the entire UK economy has reached net zero, our portfolio will have reached net zero. So I think the key the key focus for us is to say, how do we work through the financial system to support the transition to net zero? Um, and that way um, change it. I think one point that's that to my mind is really important is that all things considered, the UK is pretty small. So the UK changing to net zero on its own is really not going to have that much of an impact. This truly is a global issue. And so we need to tackle it together. So I think and this comes back to a point around financial flows and how we think about the transition and how we think about this internationally. For example, in the NGFS scenarios for the orderly transition, as a sort of a summary of the climate policy action taken, we have a shadow carbon price. That price is different for different countries, reflecting the fact that developed countries need to do a lot more in this space than emerging markets. And so we're actively trying to, because the risks um, the transition risks and the transition that needs to happen um, has to be measured accordingly. So it's something we're actively trying to reflect the political reality in in our scenarios. Um, and so, but I think the question around the sovereign space and how how the financial market will assess sovereigns in other countries and the financial risks in that space is tricky because I also appreciate that often the countries um, that will be worst hit by the physical impacts from climate change are often in the emerging market space and it's the advanced economies that are more likely to be able to adapt or are just happen to be located somewhere um, geographically but they're likely to be less hit so it's a really tricky uh, tricky dynamic to navigate thank you Urjit, what's your take well uh, let me uh, you know i i i had mentioned that uh, uh, thus far, the, the carbon premia on, on these uh, syndicated loans, etc., is pretty small. And the interesting fact is that green banks also do not appear to price carbon risk differently from other banks. That's the empirical evidence. Um, uh, uh, I mean, what Teresa has, uh, said that, you know, as the UK becomes net zero, <laughs> that portfolio becomes net zero. I think, you know, that's... Uh, that's a very sensible way of looking at this, uh, and and uh, and uh, so you know it's 2050 or 2070 uh, or 2060, uh, and and I think that's the way to do it rather than push the issue uh, any any more than that. Uh, on uh, on 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 Prashant's point uh, that you know we should be ready for carbon tariffs, etc. Well, you know there are different countries tax carbon differently. I mean just because a national jurisdiction has decided to put in a regulation of a certain sort, it doesn't mean that it has to impose a carbon tariff on what it imports. Uh, uh, India taxes uh, uh, petrol, diesel, uh, you know, 60% of the price we pay at the pump is, uh, is, is, uh, is taxes. So I think this is a dangerous route. It's, it's that old instruments versus objectives. Let us not conflate uh, every policy tool with a green objective. We will, we will end up making a mess. And I think that 
the World Trade Organization and the international trading system is far too important to go down that road, regardless of what one or two large economic blocks in the world want to do. And I think I think it would be it would be just a disaster uh, uh, to 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 bring this on board. Uh, and remember, there are welfare consequences for everyone on this. Uh, it's it's just not just the developing countries. I mean, the developed countries do benefit from cheaper goods and services. Uh, so you know, uh, uh, you know, add that to the inflation uh, that uh, that uh, that uh, that the UK is facing up to at the moment. So I think I think we need to be very careful uh, uh, in terms of. Uh, the pace, in terms of what instruments that we use, uh, and uh, we shouldn't get carried away by by using everything that is at our disposal for this one objective, uh, when actually the financial markets, in fact, so far have ignored this carbon premium. Uh, uh, and and I think uh, I think we need to trade cautiously and. Uh, and and the only the way we will trade cash cautiously is to actually have more sober uh, and realistic targets uh, and 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 that and that markets and technologies help out. I mean, ten years ago, if someone had told me that India would have hundred gigawatts of renewable power in, in you know in 2011, uh, I would not have uh, I would not have believed that. Uh, uh, and 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 now it does. And the, and the only reason. Is because the the, the cost of uh, the cost of generating that power has fallen from over 15 rupees per unit 10 years ago on solar to less than three rupees now. Uh, uh, in part, this has been helped by the massive economies of scale in the production of solar solar panels in China, uh, and uh, and it's an example of how actually international trade has helped. Uh, uh, the, the business of greening. So I come back to the point that don't let uh, uh, don't let the green uh, objectives come in the way of international trade. You don't know how non-linear and and uh, and uh, costly that that will turn out to be. Thank you, Ratan. Thank you, thank you, Jeet. And what I'm going to do now is I see two questions here in the Q and A, which I'm going to club for all of you. But first, I'd like Prashant and briefly Prashant. There's a question on taxonomy and a question on ESG. Could you take these together? What is the role of a taxonomy in this whole context? Uh, is a globally aligned taxonomy a prerequisite? And the second is the paradox of ESG ratings. Big coal companies comply with the laws of the land and they are consequently rated highly on ESG. How do you resolve this paradox? If you could just deal with these technical questions quickly. Sure. So, I mean, the taxonomy development at the moment is, is sort of um, proceeding at pace across around the world. And at the moment, I think there's something like 30 different taxonomies under development, of which uh, the Chinese and the uh, European are the most developed. But these are rapidly becoming um, essentially uh, a screening tool for, for the for, for worlds to decide what is green and what is not green. And um, it is quite important that um, when individual assets or activities are developed, that uh, investors who are looking for um, uh, developing green portfolios have that kind of clarity that um, their investment is going into a, a recognizably green um, kind of investment. So taxonomies are not there to say what 
should or should not be invested in. It's what should or should not be labelled as green and how much or proportion. So um, I think uh, the importance of it is that investors in OECD countries looking to build up a green portfolio can know with some confidence that um, the Indian assets that have been identified as being green are commensurate to ones that they're, they're used to seeing. So that's the kind of beauty of taxonomies and that international alignment. And I think that's the kind of the way that we're, we see things going. And, you know, rather paradoxically, UK is suddenly finding itself in the same situation as India of trying to work out uh, which taxonomies to align with now that we've, uh, now that Brexit has occurred. And I'm quite actively involved with uh, the green technology, the advisor group here in the UK as well. Um, so in, uh, Ruthen, your second question was- um, On ESGs, that companies, coal companies get high ESG ratings. What's this paradox? Yeah, well, I mean, I think this is one of these kind of things which is going to shift over time. I mean, um, uh, pretty much all the rating companies, you know, the big, the big international ones, Moody's, S and P, Fitch, they're all uh, in the process of actually revising their methodologies, and um, there's a lot of sort of work in progress. And I think one of the kind of the big issues for them is to stop focusing so much on historical credit analysis and think uh, be a bit more kind of forward facing as well. So um, this isn't something that's occurred to any great extent yet, but I'm sort of seeing interesting and attractive kind of analyses by S&P. And I think once they this becomes mainstream in the way they do things, it'll, 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 it will change. There's been some analyses of sovereign uh, credit ratings uh, in terms of physical risks um, and with some really alarming kind of consequences for some of the countries we might expect, like um, some of the, the low-lying states. Um, I just want to take up that kind of issue for me uh, about uh, that uh, Dr. Patel was saying. Um, I, I think this issue of... Um, border tariff adjustments is incredibly sensitive. And um, the EU is going very, very slowly and softly on it. But the situation where energy intensive, tradable goods like steel and aluminium, it's, it's, uh, which is responsible for some about 15% of emissions globally. Um, we cannot have a situation where policies are being enacted in one country, which are seeking to replace um, high carbon with low carbon, only to be undercut and undermined by uh, free trade in those particular goods. So yes, it has to be done sensitively. Yes, it has to be done carefully. But I think um, around the world, we should see this as an opportunity. I think some of the most interesting bits of work I've seen have actually been done on, on decarbonizing steel, have been done in India by uh, Terry and some of the organizations like that. So the uh, application of green hydrogen to steel production in India is absolutely on the uh, cards. And we shouldn't be discouraging that, we should be encouraging that. Okay, so thank you, Prashant. and. Uh... I'm going to answer one question on rating agencies. It's, uh, there's a question about rating agencies and why they don't rate climate. It's actually, the answer is very simple. I'm so glad people have woken up to rating agencies now and not for the last 50 years when they were sworn to as being accurate predictors of a countries. The largest correlation of a rating agency's rating and a country's sovereign rating is the per capita income of that country. The correlation between green action and green financial products and uh, per capita income is the strongest amongst all. So as long as you have rich countries who are able to easily and profitably transition into green and you don't uh, pay attention to poor countries, the business of rating agencies can continue in the same way. It does not significant. There's not going to be a case where you're, you're going to be, you know, triple B minus, uh, you know, on non-climate grounds and you're going to improve your rating to A on climate grounds. That's not going to happen. So they aren't bothered and we aren't bothered. Okay. Uh, there's an interesting question here, which is, to both uh, Teresa and, uh, well, actually, this is really to you, Teresa, uh, and Urjit, if you'd like to come in, is there a contradiction between the mandate of managing increasing climate finance, that is getting climate finance up, and managing climate-related financial risk, or is there a contradiction? 
so in fact, if you want to increase green lending, do you need to actually have a greater risk appetite or the other way around? I think that's an interesting question. Uh, the second question, which I'm also going to put to the entire panel is, we are suddenly talking about environmental risk, but what happened to all the risks that happened on social governance, et cetera, et cetera? How come in the past, central banks were blissfully unable to take account of these? Should we allow people to take a partial view of risk and focus exclusively on environmental risk? Is that fair? Or should questions of equity, questions of international balance of power also not inform this brave new world of intervention, regulation, protection, uh, and risk? Over to you guys for your final comments. Urjit, if you could start, and then we'll go to Teresa and finally Prashant. So I think that uh, one needs to be careful about the mission creep of, of central banks. Uh, uh, again, it's an issue of uh, uh, instruments and the number of objectives. Uh, it, it, would, it would not be uh, correct to, to, uh, to add on a large number of objectives uh, for the central bank to nudge uh, uh, I mean, it comes down to specific sectors eventually uh, in a certain way, uh, uh, because you are going to end up with collateral consequences uh, elsewhere. Uh, the one that I pointed out uh, that, uh, you know, uh, the cost of capital for, for everyone would rise. And the objective is that the cost of capital for everyone should come down. Uh, uh, I would just like to uh, uh, finish with one point that the, uh, this issue of carbon border taxes is similar to what was used in the past for labor and environmental standards uh, uh, for countries to impose tariffs. Uh, and and that, was, uh, that was not allowed uh, 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 for the obvious reason that you cannot have the same environmental and labor standards uh, in, a, in a low income or lower middle income country. Uh, uh, and and I think this tyranny of having specific uh, uh, regulations come up in one part of the country, and then we use the international trading system uh, as a battering ram, uh, is is something that would be very costly, and it should be resisted at all uh, by all developing countries. Uh, and as I say, that what is going to help everyone in this matter are technological breakthroughs, cost effectiveness, reliability of new solutions, uh, and, and, and that, that would be the most powerful tool for decarbonization, uh, uh, as we have seen in the case of solar. Uh, so I will, you know, I'll, I'll stop there um, and, uh, and, and let others have, the, have their final say. Thank if you. If I may crave the indulgence of the others, there's a very important question for Ujit. I'm very keen to hear his view from the audience, which is, could you tell us what in your view could be two or three immediate priority actions that the RBI could take on managing climate risks and to guide the financial sector? I, I don't think that uh, uh, that, it, it, it's, uh, that it should be the RBI's role to do this. I think what is important is for the regulatory and the supervisory uh, process and policies should guide banks and other lending institutions into internalizing these risks appropriately. Uh, 
Uh, and if these risks happen to be of a certain quantum, then perhaps risk weights can be uh, can be changed. Uh, but it should be done very cautiously and for good reason. I mean, as I mentioned in my opening remarks, actually there is no no discernible change uh, that is required in the risk uh, assessment of current conventional energy projects. Now, there has to be a reason why you would want to do that. Uh, and not just because you want uh, some other objective uh, to be pushed forward. Interesting. I learned something there. Teresa, over to you. Thank you. So uh, I think I'm very much in a similar place. Central banks have a very clear mandate, a very clear remit, and it's really important for us to stay within that remit. We're non-elected officials, so it's not for us to set climate policy. Um, that's not to say that we haven't got a really important role to play, which we do. And I think it's an interesting question around, you know, that... Um, is there a tension between managing the risk and trying to increase climate finance? The way I think about it is that um, we need to green finance. So we need to get the financial system to become green, to really understand the risks and incorporate financial considerations in its decision making. And we needed to finance um, the transition. But I think when we talk about financing the transition, there's a really important point here which we haven't talked about yet, which is greenwashing. We do not want, I think there's a real risk, say if we were to have a green supporting factor, so we lower the risk weights on green assets, there's a real risk that we're actually going to create risk because you have lots of money flooding into an aspect that isn't yet well standardised, that isn't well certified. And so you could um, get a lot of that greenwashing, you're actually not supporting the transition, you're um, sort of not, you know, yeah, you're not supporting the transition, you're sort of achieving the opposite. And so I think there's a real tension. And I think central banks typically take a cautious approach for a very good reason. We want to see the evidence. And once the evidence is there, it will be reflected in the risk weights, but not before then. So I think just being really clear on the respective roles, that's not to say that, you know, if you want more money to go into the transition, the government has a really key role to play here. We also have the Financial Conduct Authority, which actually has a key role to play to ensure against greenwashing, to really think about, you know, how does this work properly? So that in the UK, that doesn't sit with the Bank of England, but there's another body who's thinking about it. But I definitely agree that, you know, this space, actually, how exactly do you transition and the role that finance plays? Finance has a very important role to play, but that doesn't mean it's straightforward to figure out exactly how that works. Okay, very interesting. Prashant, your last thoughts? So I very much agree with uh, Dr. Patel and uh, Theresa about, you know, it's not the central banks to sort out every issue and you need to be very focused and just focus on systemic risks. Um, some of the issues of corporate sustainability, um, other kind of issues like this, I think they're adequately social issues. They're adequately dealt with by taxonomies. And I think the Indian taxonomy is, I think, quite unusual in that it's actually incorporating social issues amongst its um, themes that it's trying to focus on. So I think this kind of stuff can be done by investors looking at taxonomy alignment and uh, uh, addressing it that way. Um, I think the issue of climate risks is a little bit different to that in the sense that I've, you know, I, I sort of shared data showing A, the speed at which India is seeking to uh, affect this transition. And secondly, the already existing large exposures and the need for um, these very important companies to remain solvent and able to um, access credit to, to do the transition. So hence the kind of importance of tools like the Chinese ones, where um, central banks consider uh, using cheaper credit for um, taxonomy aligned um, green investments. And that's to your point about greenwashing. No, nobody wants to see fake green projects being uh, offered uh, cheap credit. It has to be done uh, aligned to the taxonomy. 
Thank you. Well, we have come to the end of our time, and I think this has been a fascinating discussion. I think there's enough meat here or vegetables for the vegetarian uh, for us to uh, perhaps try and distill a note and send it around with Namita's help to the to financial sector heads who are participating in UK Bank and with my old friend and OG's former colleague, Michael Patra, I think would be very interested, Deputy Governor Patra, in, in our deliberations today. Uh, these are interesting questions. You will, the audience would have noted, and you've been a fantastic audience, thank you. These were really strong, substantive questions. Uh, there are two themes here. One, of course, is the, the, the operational mechanics of making sure that we have a green policy, we understand what green is better, we avoid greenwashing, and there is a cooperative role to be played. It's also clear that there is a lot of political economy tension on how these policies are put in. There are balance of power questions here, which have to do with the fact that, you know, you cannot get $100 billion out there for green finance, but you can try and impose carbon border adjustment mechanisms. And the asymmetry, I think, is, is a source of considerable tension and lack of cooperative action, including, I'm afraid, at this call. And I think our conversation today has reflected these positives and these challenges. Uh, thank you very much, Dr. Patel, Dr. Lober, Prashant, Namita, and the audience, and have a lovely rest of the day and a good end of COP in case you guys are still involved. Thank you and goodbye. Thank, Thank you. you. Bye. Thank you. Thank you.